All right, what you're looking at is the promotion for our brand new life group season. We're getting ready next month to do a, a new life group season as a church, and I am just so excited about this topic because it's going to be about the core values of our church. Uh, we have fundamental doctrines. Uh, those are the things that we believe, but we also have some fundamental behaviors. And in fact, the series that we're in right now in Ephesians is about to get over to the behavior side. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 are all about the way we, be, uh, we believe as the body of Christ, what Christ has done for us. And then you get into chapter 4, which is where we're going to be today. And Paul begins to talk about how we live in light of what Christ has done. We're moving from Christian doctrine to Christian duty. And in this series, the Life Group series that we're starting, we're going to rally around six values that we have defined in the church to say that these things matter to us. They influence the way that we act, the decisions we make, the way that we budget the church's resources, the, the types of outreaches that we do. These things influence the culture of the kingdom of God in this local expression. And so we are super excited. So let me say unashamedly, today's message is a part of a series. I was going to preach it uh, this way. This was the plan uh, several weeks ago. But let me just say, today's message is a huge plug for life groups. Now, I may not say that a bunch more times, so I want, to, I want you to catch it now. Like one of the most practical responses that you could give to the message today is to leave this place and, and be intentional about Christian community. Now, before we get into it, let me tell you about another community opportunity. Uh, this was in the announcements, but the deadline is upon us. So uh, I want to invite you to end the summer with us this Labor Day weekend by going to a baseball game. I don't know if you've ever been out to the York Revs baseball game. I don't even know if you're a baseball fan, but let me tell you my logic. Here's the deal. It's like $27. Is that right? $27. All you can eat barbecue on the patio. At that point, baseball doesn't even matter, does it? <laughs> I mean, really, all you can eat. Uh, so, so we're going to go out Labor Day weekend on Friday night. We're going to sit on the patio in right field, hopefully catch a home run ball or two. And we're going to watch the game. We're going to eat some great food. And if you want to go and be a part of that, sign up at the Info Center. We've got 20 tickets already. We'd love to sell even more than that. Uh, but sign up so that we know you're going. Bring your kids if you want to bring your kids. They have a, a gated playground out there so they can eat and then go play on the playground. But we're going to have a lot of fun. And the whole purpose of us doing it is because, admittedly, it'll be the only Revs game I watch this year. I'll just, you know, I like baseball if I'm present, if I'm watching it. Otherwise, there's just too many games. They play like 150 games, and I don't know how many games they play, but... Uh, I love going and watching a live ball game. We'd love to go watch one together. So if you got your Bible, open it with me to Ephesians. And we're going to be in chapter four, but I want to start with our theme verse for this series, which is called more. Now, I've had you stand up a lot, so I'm not going to make you do it today, but I do want you to read it with me out loud. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter three. Verse 20 to 21. This is the, the heart of what I believe God wants to say to us in this season. Everybody, it's on the screen if you haven't found it in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Let's read it out loud together. Go now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine 
according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God wants to do immeasurably more. Immeasurably more. And today, we're going to look at just how we can have glory to God in the church. That's what the verse said that you just read out loud. To him be glory in the church. How does God receive glory in the church? Paul has taken the last three chapters to explain what Christ has done for us. If you've never read, or maybe you missed this series up to this week, and you've never read the book of Ephesians, I want to encourage you to go back and to read through chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, because God is just, Paul is just showing us that Christ has lifted us, he's elevated us, he's put us in a place of an incredible position of favor and blessing with God through Christ. That's what happened at salvation. But now, God wants to do even more. And as Paul is just praising God and saying, this is what God can do, he's saying, this is what God wants to do. And now he's going to get into verse chapter 4 and chapter 5 and 6, and he's going to say, this is how God wants to do it. You want to know how to glorify God? I hope so, because you're here, and I'm about to tell you. (laughs) Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 4. It says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling. That one statement, Paul's heart in this one statement could really be a summary of the rest of the book. This is the heart of God. This is this is my heart. I hope it's yours. I don't want when, when they lay my body in the grave, if the Lord tarries, I don't want to be laid in that grave with me, the dreams, the hopes, the aspirations that I had. I don't want to be laid in that grave, the plans and the purpose that God had for my life, the unfinished work that I was gifted and called and anointed to do. I want to live a life that is worthy of the calling. Amen. How about you? Now, you might be here today and say, I, I, I don't even know if I have a calling. Well, if, if that's you today, then you're the one that needs to go back and read chapter one again. Because you do have a calling. God has gifted you. He's adopted you. He's chosen you. He redeemed you with his precious son's blood. He's illuminated your heart through the word of God. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He set you apart. He has a call on your life. It might not be vocational ministry. Some of the people that stood down front here because they're going back into the school are going back into their calling. They're called to that place. They're called to that career. They're called to those kids. And so are you. You have a calling on your life. The prayer and the heart today is that we would live a life that is worthy of that calling. Now, I think this is important to the church as a whole because what Paul is about to tell us is an answer to the question, What does a healthy church look like? I don't know about you, but I want to be a healthy church. Now, now let me say, I I do believe we have a healthy church. I think this is a a healthy church, but this series is not called enough. (laughs) It's called more. So I want to be an even more healthy church. I want more people being saved in the house of God, more people being discipled, more lives being restored and families put back together. How about you? 
Do you believe today that God can do immeasurably more? See, I haven't started preaching yet, but here's how this works. I'm going to keep saying things to get you excited until I know you're with me, and then we'll start. No, we really are there. Verse 2, are you ready? Look at it. It says, here's what you do. Here's what I want you to do. If the church is going to be healthy, if the church is going to glorify God, and let me personalize this. If your family is going to glorify God, you can make application with this because it's not just an organization that needs this. The church is not a building. The church is people. So it's you and I that need to grab this truth today. And so he's going to tell us three things here in chapter four, the first few verses. He's going to tell us three things that, that communicate to us what a healthy church looks like. See, a healthy church is a growing church. I just believe healthy things grow. I never had to worry. I say never had to. My kids are still young. They're still growing. I never have to worry if my kids are going to grow. I, I, I make sure they're healthy. And, and growth is a byproduct. You understand what I'm saying? It's the same with the, the, the body of Christ. Now, do the numbers matter? Absolutely, the numbers matter. I mean, Jesus left the 99 to go after the one. You know how he knew he had one to go after? He counted the 99. The numbers matter. The money matters. But there are more signs of health in a church. There are more signs of growth in a church than just how many nickels and how many noses we can count. And so Paul is saying, these are the things that you need to look at. These are the things that attribute to growth in the body of Christ, who you are. And this is how God gets more glory through the church. The first thing, if you're a note taker, is this, growing in unity. And we see it in verse number two, growing in unity. Here's what it says. Be completely humble. Be humble. Now, humble, you know, is a a uniquely Christian virtue. The Greeks, they they, they didn't even like the word. They, They didn't look at humility as a virtue. It was a vice. Humility was a weakness. And a lot of non-Christian cultures are the same today. There's no no value in in humility. But listen, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. Paul is not saying you should, you know, be weak and and, and timid and inferior and, and lowly. No, he just spent the last three chapters building us up, saying who we are in Christ. But if you want to grow in unity, you have to be humble. You have to be humble. It's only in Christ that humility becomes a virtue. It's only when you look at Jesus. The Bible says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, it's in about verse 6 or 7, it says that he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself in the likeness of man. He became obedient even to death, death on a cross. And because Jesus is our ultimate example, Jesus, who said, the greatest among you is the servant of all. You want to be great in the kingdom? Don't take the seat of honor. Pick up the towel and be the one that washes people's feet. Be the servant. So Jesus gave us this example. And now Paul follows that pattern. He says, you want to grow in unity? It starts with humility. Be completely humble. Then he says, and gentle. Now, gentleness is a, is a unique word in the text because it's the same word that's translated other places as meekness. 
the picture for that word was often used to describe an animal, a powerful animal that had been bridled or harnessed so that it was useful. In other words, gentleness, an animal that, that could, be, uh, could be dangerous, but now it's controlled, it's subdued, it's effective. Paul says we need to be gentle with one another. And then he says this, he says, be patient. And then he explains what, what he means by patience. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. You know what, what Paul is saying in that moment? Again, he's, he's talking to Christians. That different century, but people are people are people. Amen? I mean, here's what Paul's saying. When somebody frustrates you, don't be so quick to take offense. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You ever had to just bear with somebody? Just, uh, just bear with them. Did you, did you know you don't have to take an offense on social media? No, seriously, I think there's some people that didn't know that. This is like, this is revelation for you. You don't have to reply. Amazingly enough, you can bear with people patiently in love and just keep scrolling. Just, just scroll on. It's amazing how much conflict could be avoided. You know, if we would just patiently bear with one another. Now, I know it's not, I know it's not easy. But he's talking about growing in unity. And if the church is going to grow in unity, we have to have humility. We have to be gentle. We have to have patience. Look at verse three. It's no wonder that the next verse says this. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Come on, somebody say every effort. You know, sometimes every effort just sounds like silence. You ever had to take that approach when you're patiently bearing with others in love? You just got to... Come on, the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is bite your tongue. Amen? Amen. Or just keep scrolling. Just like, oh, you want to blow them up. You, you want, I mean, you want to light them up. You got something to say. You've already said it 10 times. You've worked it out. It sounds so good. You're ready to burn them. <laughs> Silence. Silence. Bear with them. You know, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You ever experienced that before? Some of you are thinking back to your last family reunion. You know, all this great food out, but turmoil. Everybody's just chewing on each other, bickering back and forth, and you're going, I would rather be at home eating stale crackers on my lazy boy. And to be here, and that's what the psalmist said, better to have a stale piece of crust and to have peace than to have a feast and to have strife. Make every effort, Paul said. That's, that's the goal. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I want you to notice something about verse three there. He said, keep the unity. He didn't say create the unity. He said, keep it. What I want you to understand, what he's talking about here is a unity that, that we didn't purchase. 
It was given to us. Jesus did this for us. He unified us. Last week, we talked about how at the cross, Jesus not only positioned us with with Christ, but he positioned us in the body. He tore down the barrier wall of hostility. He reconciled races. He overcame uh, social and economic walls and boundaries. He put us together in one family. And now Paul is reiterating, we have to make every effort to keep. We didn't earn it, but it is ours to maintain. It is, it is ours to defend. And what I want you to hear today, number one, a healthy church is growing in unity. And then Paul, in the next couple of verses, he's going to explain what this unity is that Jesus has given to us. Look at verse four with me. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's what what Paul is saying. He's saying God has given us all of these things so that we can be absolutely unified about these things. There's, There's one Father, one Son, one Holy Spirit. We all are unified on that. There's nothing you can change about that. We all have one hope. The hope is in the finished work of Jesus. Amen, church? That's our hope today. My hope is built on nothing less, the songwriter said, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He's the cornerstone of our foundation, of our salvation. We have one faith. That means we believe this same conviction. Our faith is our our doctrine. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We believe that. That's our one faith. He says we have one baptism. We're baptized. When when we're baptized in water, it's an outward expression of what happens in the moment of salvation. We're baptized with the presence of the Spirit of God on the inside of us. If you got saved, you got the same baptism. There's only one baptism. And that water baptism, that that celebration of that, it's like the initiation for every believer. We celebrate that we all have one baptism. In fact, there, there was a place that Paul had planted a church in Corinth that the people began to to argue with one another about who they followed. Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, some said, I'm of of Peter. Others said, well, I'm just of Jesus. And and Paul wrote a letter to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said this, he said, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, he said, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. What was he saying? He was telling them the same thing he told the Ephesians. We all have unity on this thing. It's not, oh, I follow this guy or I follow that guy. Paul said, no, it's Christ. You were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, it's funny, I've noticed in the church, we usually can get on board and and say amen when we talk about one father, one spirit, one son. Now, though you're not doing it right now, usually the church can say amen when we talk about one faith. But we get quiet when we talk about one body. Start to, you know, make excuses for all the divisions in the kingdom of God. But can I just remind you, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back for one church. And it's not going to be a 
church that has assembly of God on the sign, or United Methodist, or Baptist, or Presbyterian, he's coming back for his church, for those who are the blood-bought, redeemed of the Lord, Amen. those who share this one faith, this one baptism in the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Paul is saying, look, you got to make every effort to keep this unity, because you got it. You, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, right? So you're in. You're unified. You're in this family. You're one of us, like it or not. Jesus is coming back for his church. Paul was writing this to people that had experienced all, all kinds of differences and diversity, every bit as much as you or I could imagine. In fact, just go with me real quick to the book of Acts chapter 19. I, I just want you to see something. Acts chapter 19. This, this will give you an idea of how diverse the members of this church in Ephesus was because in Acts chapter 19, we get the story of when Paul actually went to Ephesus and began to preach. And, and God did such an incredible move in that city. I mean, such a revival. It really wasn't a revival. They didn't have a move of God before that. It was a spiritual awakening. It was something new that God was doing. And it was so powerful that it completely interrupted the industry in that city. Because Ephesus was a city that was known as for its big shrine to the goddess Artemis. And there were people that were profiting from that industry and from that worship that took place. It's like, it's like when you go to a big sports arena and, and all the people are out on the sidewalk and they're selling little bobbleheads and T-shirts and, and inflatable baseball bats. Or, you know, all those people are making money off of the, what's going on inside. That's what was happening in Ephesus. So these metal shop workers, they were making little, uh, little false graven images and little statues and, and, and little carvings. And, and they were making money as silversmiths doing this. And so the Bible says that there was a man who was a silversmith named Demetrius in Acts 19.24 who made these little shrines and he brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So look at verse 25. It says, he called them together along with the workers in related trades. And he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and you hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and that the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, if a guy preaching on a corner can rob a deity of its majesty, maybe that should have clued them in that she wasn't really a god to begin with. But the point is, they were frustrated, and they started stirring up a riot, so much so that, that it says the whole town began to flow into the arena, and they were chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. The Bible says later on that many of the people didn't even know why they were there. They were just stirred up in this riot. And finally, the, the city clerk steps up and, and he tries to bring order to the situation. Now, look at verse 35. He says, the city clerk quieted the crowd and he said, fellow Ephesians, 
Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. Now, I just wanted to read those two verses to you to show you the diversity that was going on in the city that Paul was preaching to, that he's now writing to in Ephesus. Because this man, here's the logic as he stands before a hostile crowd. He said, listen, here's what we know. These are undeniable, he said. Here's the undeniable truths that Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of Artemis and that her image fell down from heaven to us. Now, if that's your absolute undeniable truth, how many of you know it's going to be hard to see eye to eye? Like, Where do you begin a conversation with somebody that says, here's what we know. I mean, this is just absolutely undeniable. The whole world knows that Ephesus is the guardian of the temple and that this big statue fell down from heaven. And yet those people started hearing the gospel. Those people started being saved and those people's lives started being changed. And all of a sudden, unity starts to be made. People that had such differing views are all of a sudden one because of what Christ has done. See, Jesus prayed this for us. Jesus prayed for unity. Often we look at the Lord's prayer and we say the Lord's prayer is what was actually the disciples' prayer. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's, that's our prayer. But if you want to know what his prayer looked like, you got to go to John 17. Because John 17 is where Jesus was interceding for the church. And he was praying for us. And in John 17, 21, he prayed this for the church. He said, Father, that all of them may be one. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, here's why he prayed for unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the heart of God. He wants the church to grow in unity because the world needs to know that God sent Jesus because it's only in Jesus that we can have this kind of unity. It's only in what he's done that we can be the powerful, unstoppable church of the living God. I, I want you to try something with me. Every, everybody that's married, on the count of three, I want you to just say the name of the church that you were married in. Now, some of you are asking your spouse. Maybe, maybe it was a beach. Maybe it was on a farm. That's okay. Just say the location of the place you were married. On the count of three. One, two, three. All right. Did you get all those? All right. Now, if you have a relationship with your Lord and Savior, if you've been saved, if you've been translated out of darkness and into light, and you know that your life is sealed you have an eternal home in heaven because of your Savior. On the count of three, I want you to say his name. One, two, three. Jesus. Amen. See, a unified church is the only voice that is loud enough and clear enough that the whole world can hear it. 
If there's going to be clarity in the message of the church, there has to be unity in the church. And so that's what Paul was saying. You want to be healthy, you got to grow in unity. Amen? Let me give you the second thing. He said we got to grow not only in unity, but you got to grow in diversity of gifts. Verse 7, still in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, but he spent the last few verses talking about how we're all the same. We're one faith, one father, one Lord, one baptism, all this. And it starts to sound like that he's starting to preach toward uniformity. And then he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. See, God's plan for a healthy church is that we grow in unity, not uniformity, but in unity. So while we make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit, we also celebrate and we explore the unique grace of God that is on each member. It's not one or the other. It's both and. He says, each one of you, to each one of us, grace has been given. Grace has been given. And what does that mean? Grace has been given to each one of you. Well, we could say this. We could say that saving grace has been given to each one of us. And that would be true because we can't be saved as a group. How many of you know when you stand before God one day, you stand alone? God has no grandchildren. You have to make a personal decision to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. So we could say that's absolutely true, that the grace that God has given to each one of us is saving grace. But how many of you understand that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture? Before you go to, to some commentary, you need to just look at what the Word says and see how the Word lines up with itself. So if you go over to Romans chapter 12, you get a great exposition on this verse in Ephesians 4. Romans 12, verse 6 says this. We have different gifts. Everybody say different gifts. <laughs> According to the grace given to each of us. So see, he's not talking about saving grace. He's talking about serving grace. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given to each one of us. And then he goes on to, to give some examples. He says, if you have the gift of prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If your gift is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then you should teach. If it's encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You have a serving grace on your life. You've been each one gifted uniquely, he's saying. As Christ has apportioned it with a grace. So while we all fight to maintain and strive to maintain the unity, we also need to celebrate and grow in the diversity of the gifts. He, he said the same thing to the church of Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 12 says it like this in verse four. There are different kinds. Can we just say different kinds, different kinds. of gifts? But the same spirit distributes them all. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Verse seven says, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians four? He said there's it's of the same spirit, of the same Lord, of the same God. 
One faith, one Lord, one baptism. But in the midst of all that, there are different kinds of graces on your life. God has graced you to do something unique in the body of Christ. I don't know if you've been told this or not, but you're gifted. You're gifted. God has gifted you uniquely to build up the body of Christ. A healthy church is a church that's growing in its diversity of gifts. How do we do that? Two ways to grow in the diversity of gifts. One is personal desire, and the second is public demonstration. Personal desire and public demonstration. If you want to grow in the gift of God, first of all, you have to individually, for yourself, pursue the gifts of the Spirit. That's what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. It says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. If you want to have a gift of the Spirit, you have to personally desire it. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, he said. Secondly, there has to be a public demonstration. In other words, we have to foster an atmosphere where you can develop the gift of God that you've been graced with. Yeah, I was thinking about this last Wednesday night in our prayer gathering. We had several that were sitting right in this section over here. And as we began to pray together, I, I exhorted everyone to begin to listen for God to speak a word of prophecy. What does that look like? Well, Ephesians or 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that when somebody prophesies, they speak to people, not to God. So rather than just talking to God and asking or praising God, we begin to talk to people. And he says, when you talk to people in a prophecy, it's for strengthening, it's for encouraging, it's for admonishing the body of Christ. It's for lifting up the body of Christ. And so Wednesday night, as we were praying together, I said, let's, let's just take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to not just speak to us, let's ask him to speak through us. And so we all just prayed for a moment. And after a little while, somebody just began to share something that they felt like God was saying. They begin to give a word of encouragement. And then somebody else began to just share that this is what the Lord put on my heart. And they just began to share something. Then somebody else shared a scripture. And they said, here's what the word of the Lord says. And as we listened to all of that, God began to put together a very unified, powerful word to the church. That's, that's what Paul's talking about when he says God has given us each one a gift. He's graced us with a gift. You have to have a personal desire, and you have to have a public demonstration if you're going to grow in the gift. There, ha there has to be a moment where you actually do it. You know, it's amazing to me how many people say, like, I don't know what my gift is. And I say, well, which gift have you tried to use? Well, none, because I don't know what it is. And, and I associate it with riding a bicycle. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't say I taught my daughter how to ride a bicycle just because I explained it to her. I can't actually say I taught her how to ride a bicycle until she can say I rode a bike. Do you understand that the two go hand in hand? It's not an eager desire alone. It's an eager desire and an application. There's a moment where you actually have to get on the bike and you actually begin to pedal. And then you can say, oh, now I learned how to ride a bike. It's the same with the gifts of the spirit. And Paul is saying, if you're going to be a healthy church, you have to grow in your diversity of gifts. And for some of you, you need, you need to seek the Lord and say, God, help me to discover my gift. But don't just sit on the sideline and wait for rays to come down from heaven and to all of a sudden empower you to do something you never tried before. 
How many of you crashed a bike before? Come on. How many of you learned how to ride a bike? I would dare say nobody learned how to ride a bike that didn't also raise their hand and say, I crashed a bike before. Part of the process. That's why there's a grace for the diversity. There's a grace for it. See, the problem in the church is we don't have any grace for a diversity of the gifts. And so as soon as somebody tries a gift and crashes the bike, we go, oh, we're not doing that in our church. That was out of order. And so we throw the baby out with the bathwater. There has to be grace to grow in the gifts. Life groups, by the way, are a great atmosphere to grow in the gifts. Man, if, you don't, if you've never prophesied, if you've never even spoken publicly, I wouldn't advise doing it here now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that would be awkward for all of us. But when you're in a setting like we were on Wednesday night, or when you're gathered with the body of Christ in somebody's house, and you go, boy, I just really felt while I was driving over to your house that God wanted me to share. I don't know who this is for, but I just really felt like the Lord wanted me to share this. Boom. Gifts of God. Gifts of the Spirit in operation. Beautiful. It's beautiful to see the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ. We have to have a personal desire for it. There has to be a public demonstration. It doesn't always have to be Sunday morning at 10 a.m. There has to be a public demonstration of the gift. At some point, you begin to step out in faith and do what God's graced you to do. Let me give you the third and final thing. If we're going to be a healthy church, we're going to grow in unity. We're going to grow in diversity of gifts, but we're also going to grow in maturity. We're going to grow in maturity. Look, look with me. We're going to skip down to verse 13. It says in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, if that phrase, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ sounds familiar, it's because we read it last weekend. At the end of chapter three, Paul is praying for this church, and he prays for them in verse 19 of chapter 3, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's his desire. Now he's telling them practically, how do we do that? How do we get to the place where we are full of Christ? How do we get there? Well, we have to strive for more unity. We have to have a conviction that, that we should be unified. We have to be more diverse in our expression of spiritual gifts. Not let the church, the problem, I say the problem, there's all kinds of problems, let's be honest. But one of the issues in the church in our day and age is that we've built churches on personality. Let me just say, this is not my church. This church doesn't live and die on me. And it's a danger to, to build an entire church on one person's personality. There's no strength in that. Because when that one person may falter or that one person may go somewhere else, what's left of the work? No, the strength is in the diversity of the gifts, each member doing its part. And the part that we just skipped over for time's sake says that God not only gave everybody gifts, but he wants you to discover and use your gifts so much that he gave gifts to the people that received gifts. And the gifts that he gave to those that received the gifts or what we call the fivefold ministry. Prophets, apostles, teachers, pastors, evangelists. And I, I carry the title of pastor. Some believe it's just pastor-teacher, that there's really four, and that those two go hand in hand. 
But understand, regardless of what title somebody may carry or what office of a prophet or apostle or an evangelist or a pastor or teacher, they're all given for one reason. The Bible says for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So my role is, is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. My role is not to do all the ministry. It's to equip you. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. I want to equip you so that you know that you are a sent one. That God has unified our hearts, given us a diversity of gifts. And it's up to us to begin to grow in maturity. Why? Why do we need to grow that way? Look at verse 14. Verse 14 tells us why. He said, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. Paul was well aware of the deception living in the day and age that he was writing to. And we ought to be well aware that it exists in ours. And Paul said, look, we we can't be... We can't be thrown off course by by every new age thought that comes, by every new philosophy or or every new teaching or by people that are deceptively and cunningly trying to corrupt the gospel. He's saying, look, I I don't want you to be deceived anymore. I don't want you to be tossed around by false teaching. So we need to grow more mature. We need to grow more mature. In, In verse three, we read it earlier. He said, make every effort to keep the unity. Keep the unity. That's what what Christ gave us in salvation. But but look look at verse 13. It almost sounds like a contradiction. Verse 13, he said, until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So do we have the unity or are we still striving for it? These are two different things. The unity that we're supposed to keep is that we're all a part of the family of God. We're all members of Christ's body. We keep that. But he says, as you grow in maturity, what happens is you begin to reach a level of of unity that is tangible, something you can get your, your hands around, a level of unity that's in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. It's in the faith. That, that means our understanding of the gospel. Now, look, you don't have to understand the gospel to come to Jesus very much. You just simply believe. Just believe. The Bible says you can come with the faith of a child. Only believe, and you can be saved. You don't have to understand all the gospel. You need to understand today that you're a sinner, and you need a Savior, and that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died a substitutionary death on the cross so that you and I could have a right relationship with God. If you can grab a hold of the fact that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and Jesus is offering that to me, you can be saved. But how many of you know if you're going to grow in maturity, you got to learn some things? You can't be 10 years in the church and just say, well, I just don't understand the Bible. I mean, if you're a Christian, you can't keep saying that. I'm not saying some of it's not difficult. I'm saying if we're going to grow in maturity, we have to, he said, grow in the faith, in the faith. Until we reach unity so that we start to understand what we believe, so that there's a common understanding of our convictions. But not only that we grow in the faith, but he also said we're reaching unity by growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, what that means is a personal knowledge. That means a personal experience. As as you walk with God daily, as you abide in his presence, as you trust him through the mountains and the valleys, the good seasons and the bad, you begin to know God intimately. You begin to have a knowledge of the Son of God. Can I, can I just say, 
That's, this is why I, I love hearing amens in church. Amen. <laughs> hey, better late than never. <laughs> Here's why. Because when you say amen, you're saying I'm in unity with you in one of two ways. You're either saying I'm in unity in the faith or I'm in unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. You're saying, if you say amen to something theological, you're saying, I believe that's true. I'm in unity with that biblical truth. Amen. That is the truth. Amen. But I may be talking about an experience. I may be talking about a valley. I may be talking about trouble, and you say amen. And what are you saying? You're saying, I've been there. I've been through that. I know Jesus in that situation. And what are we doing? We're building unity. See, your amen matters. I should have preached that point earlier. <laughs> Listen, I, w- I want to pray for you here as we get to the end of this service, and, and I, want to give you, I want to give you the result before I pray. We're almost to the end of this section. I want you to see the result of when we have unity, when we have diversity of gifts, and when we have maturity. It's right here in verse 15 and 16. Look at it with me. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. That's the goal. He said, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. Don't, don't miss that. That's, that's the key. How does it work? The, Jesus doesn't just come and build the body up by his presence. No, we build itself, it says. The church builds itself up in love. See, none of this happens outside of the context of relationship. None of it does. Because I only have my gifts. And I, I can't be unified all by myself. And so as we're unified and as we express a diversity of gifts and we begin more and more to walk in covenant, we can say amen to the same faith statements and amen to the same experiences with Jesus. What happens is we begin to build ourselves up. We become a strong church. We become a vibrant church, a healthy church. You got to stay connected. You got to stay connected. He said it's joined and held together by every supporting ligament. And that's really all I want to be today. I just want to be a ligament. (laughs) I want to grab a hold of you, and I want to grab a hold of you, and I want to say, let's come together. Let's stay together so that God can build a healthy church. Would you bow your head with me? Let's pray.